0: Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. So welcome to this first podcast for 2019. Uh, It's really great that you could be here. Today I'm talking with Joe Fish Kay. He's a principal scientist, principal research scientist at Mozilla. And before this, he worked at Yahoo and at Nokia. And what's interesting is that Joe Fish made a really deliberate decision when he finished his PhD that he didn't want to pursue an academic career and instead wanted to work in industry. And it's interesting to hear how he approached this decision making and how his criteria for uh, the different jobs that he's moved into have changed and evolved over time. You know, starting primarily about the people he could work with to becoming much more values driven and really being concerned with being able to make an impact in what he does. In fact, there's a strong sense of values and impact in a lot of what he talks about in different ways. So he discusses a lot of his experiences more generally about working in industry in an industry context, and also as he's now moving into more management and leadership roles. So again, as usual, lots of really interesting things here. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe Fish Kay. So Joe Fish, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Um. I wanted to talk to you because you made a decision after your PhD to work in industry. And so I just think it'd be really interesting to hear about your experiences, some part of that decision-making process and just some of your experiences in playing out. So where did you do your PhD?
1: So I did my PhD at Cornell uh, with Phoebe Singers. And I was getting to the end of that and had to make a decision about what to do next. Mm. And I think I originally thought that I might go into industry for a few years and then move into academia. Um, And I think I quite quickly realized that I didn't want to do that anymore, that I was really happy being in industry, and I was able to do all the things I wanted to do. Um, And I guess it's been, whatever, 10 or 12 years now. And I've had a lovely time. And you're still there. I'm still there. I'd recommend it. You know. So
0: um, did you go and work in industry straight away you know, as, you, as a first preference for a job that you thought oh. you were just trying it out for a bit?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so when I finished up my PhD, I started talking to people and talking to friends. And in particular, uh, two interesting opportunities came up at CHI that year. I went and I talked to Elizabeth Churchill, and Elizabeth said, oh, well, we're hiring in my group at Yahoo. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and I talked to my friend Wendy Jew, and Wendy said, my friend Tico over at Nokia, his group is hiring. Uh, so I talked to Tico, and they both said, great, why don't you come out for an interview? Um, and really the choice there was about uh, I met some great people in both places, Um, It was a quality of life thing in the Mm -hmm. Yahoo was off at Great America. It meant driving everywhere. Um, Whereas Nokia's lab was in Palo Alto. We could walk over to California for lunch, which we did regularly. Both had great teams and great people. Um, So I went to Nokia.
0: Right.
1: And pretty soon after that, I started... I knew that moving into industry, one of the things I was going to miss was teaching. I've always enjoyed teaching. I've always enjoyed that relationship with students. And I pretty quickly started coaching for Pam Hines' class. Okay. Um, So she was teaching. Did you
0: approach her about that or had that happen?
1: How did that happen? It might have, I think it was actually through her co uh, teacher, Julie Mm Stamford. So Julie Stamford. no, how did that happen? Because I met no, I met Julie in that class. I don't remember. I don't remember. What, I th- I, th- I think Pam must have reached out to me, mm. but it's possible because Nokia was right next to Stanford. We had a lot of good relationships there. Right. Um, so I started coaching that, and then uh, Terry Winograd was looking for someone to help coach his class with Josh Cohen on designing liberation technologies. So I coached that for a couple of years, and. Then I realized that was one of the most fun things I was doing. And so I said, hey, can I come and teach this with you and Josh? Um, and so Terry and Josh Cohen and myself and a guy called Zia Youssef, um, who had just left SAP at the time, we taught that class for a couple of years. And then Stanford's HCI department said, hey, can you teach the intermediate HCI class? And so I taught that, me and John Tung, nice, that, great. Because they said, we, would you teach this? And I said, only if I get to pick my co-teacher and they were like, uh, okay. Um, and I'd wanted to know John better. I, you know, i liked what I, I knew him a bit, but not that well. So he and I taught it. And then they were like, okay, we need a few more people to teach this because having two people from outside the university. And so Michael took it back over and changed it more into model with five or six external industry people. And maybe I should back up a little bit. Stanford, I f- always feel universities have things that they do particularly well. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like Stanford's secret source is uh, being able to bring in people from industry. Yeah. Because it's in the middle of In reality. the middle. Yes. And it makes yep. such a difference. And that's what they do really, really well. And it's the great thing you get from a Stanford education is that exposure to all these people who are really doing stuff in the real world. And in other schools have other wonderful capabilities, yeah. but that's Stanford's special yeah, source. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Did you have any trouble negotiating yeah. that with, your, um, with Nokia?
1: I had, very, uh, I had a fabulous manager, Mirjana Spasyevic, and she was totally happy with that. Um, I later switched jobs, and again, I had managers who were enthusiastic about this and saw the value that it brought to the corporation, right? In what way? How did you argue that? it brings visibility in all of these cases so I was at Nokia for a few years I was at Yahoo I was at, I've been at Mozilla we are not in none of these cases were we the biggest dog in the room yeah. right um and yet we could show up and be present in the minds of these really top undergraduates these top graduate students um it was a way to have that visibility to have that influence mm-hmm. and to tie in these these uh these researchers into the stuff that we were doing on a day to day basis. And we can point to there's a couple of papers that came out that we were able to do because we had a really healthy relationship with Stanford and with Stanford students. Um, that I think if we hadn't had that that larger context of a university relationship, it would be much harder to do. Mm,
0: yeah. Was it also um, enabling you to identify good students to possibly recruit or was that 100%, less? 100%. Yes. 100% yeah. Re-
1: recruiting, uh, internships, right? Those two tying closely together. Um,
0: I really like the fact that you've identified your, whichever way the first relationship with Pam Hines came mm. about, the fact that you said that was something you really loved. Mm. And then, you know, making a way for that to happen and then to be a regular part of your ongoing professional yep. life.
1: And it's only, I kept it up, I tried to do one quarter a year was sort of how it ended up working. Um, and I do little things here and there, but but everybody does does, you know, yeah can you guess teach this class of course right but those one quarter a year of, of actual teaching that's something I was able to fit into my professional career really up until the time I was chairing Kai and that's when I was like alright I can't, I can't do both those two things um, so I stopped it then and now uh, since I moved to Mozilla I'm in more of a have more responsibilities um, yeah. it, there's a lot of extra work and I just don't have the time right yeah. now
0: yeah, do you miss it, or I, does it feel like you've done it for a while and you know, it's
1: fine? Maybe both of those at the same time. Yeah, um, I I do miss the excitement. I don't miss the logistics <laughs> so much. Does that of, mean the administration around the course? That... It was the administration, but I mean more than things like parking on campus and having to think about parking on campus and um, those. Mm. Sort of niggly things end up making such a difference. Um, I love the fact that right now, for example, I have minimal commute. Like it takes me about eight minutes to bike from my home to my office, and
0: bike, not even yeah. not even drive, not
1: even drive, yeah, and that's hardly
0: worth getting on the bike
1: for. <laughs> absolutely right. But then to say, well, okay, now I'm going to take the half hour to go over to Stanford and then half hour to come back. That's a lot of extra yeah. time, right?
0: Yeah. So it sounds like it was good for while it, while it happened and it's still, Absolutely. time's moved on. Yes. Time's moved on. So you said, did you apply? I'm just interested about, did you apply for faculty positions at all or did nope. you? Not at all? None. Okay. None. What was it about an academic role that you didn't connect with or
1: want to do? Um, applying for grants. Yeah. Right. Particularly you look at the sort of uh, the global funding situation for tertiary education and I'm looking at these funding situations where people are getting, you know, 7% of grants are getting funded, 5%. Um, um,
0: even 1%, 2% in yes. some
1: European calls. Absolutely. And I've, I've done my share of being on NSF panels, whatever, and I've looked at these proposals coming in, and easily 80% of these are fundable. Yeah. And yet only 5 or 10 or 20 And that seemed such a – you end up being so – limited in what you can do. And let me present a, a possibly controversial opinion. I've been able to have a lot of freedom to do what I want because I am in industry and because mm-hmm. I am not therefore limited yep. by the need to get funding to be able to support the work that I do. Yeah. And I think there is a story which is aspirational and valid and a really good narrative, which is ah, the freedom of academia to do whatever you want. Yeah. But in a world in which that academia is not suitably publicly funded and getting external funding is such a key part, all of a sudden that that doesn't happen yeah. really anymore. And so, yeah. okay, now what's
0: going on? I totally agree. I totally agree. Because it's, it's the freedom, in, in quotes, mm. but... Often it's um, according to what the funders' agendas are because increasingly funding agencies are setting the priorities of what they want to fund. Yes. So you have to reshape, reinvent to fit a call. Yes. And I know for myself that when I've looked back at my recent publications, a good number of them have, or most of them, have not come from my funded projects. Mm. They've come from more skunk work projects or projects with, with students and... Other avenues, and the, the, even though the projects have ta- the funded projects have taken an enormous amount of work, often that work's been more about reporting and mm-hmm. administration and going to meetings and crazy stuff.
1: Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of overhead there, yeah. and it's interesting that now that I'm moved into this position where at Mozilla I uh, I run our Mozilla Research Grant process, mm-hmm. and we've given out something like. Uh, I think it's probably 30-odd grants um, over the last uh, two years that I've been running it. We've got a deadline in a few days' time um, for the fourth round. And we really – I took it over and I wanted to move it from being kind of a small – it was a very focused grant program, right? Like if if you were doing something that I knew that I needed, I'd be like, oh, here you go. Yes. So it wasn't really a public call. um, And we changed it to say, let's have a public call. Let's be much more open about the diverse kinds of research that we're funding. Um, and I've been really delighted by that process. But so what would be your success rate, then, if
0: you you said you've um, uh, awarded 30 so far? So
1: uh, I haven't done – well, let's do some math. So the first time around, we had, uh, I think, 36 um uh, applications, and uh, we accepted about 10 or 12 of them. I think it was 12 of them. So a third. That's good. Right?
0: That's really good.
1: Second time around, we had 78 people apply, right? Word um, got out. <laughs> word got out. And again, it was roughly about uh, about 10 or a dozen, right? Mm-hmm. So now, Is that
0: more limited by
1: budget? It's 100% limited yeah. by budget. If I had twice the budget, I would put out twice the, the things. Um, in the spring, we had 115 people apply, and again, sort of about about ten. Right. Um, this fall, we had some budget limitations where we knew we were only going to give we're only be able to give out a small number of grants, and so instead of doing these big open calls, which are great and really ins- inspirational and exciting, we did a really focused one in which we we picked three particular areas. And said, these are the exact questions we want an answer to. That um,
0: fitted more business priorities. 100% aligned with business yeah, priorities. Yeah.
1: Where we could say things like, um, so the one that's closest to my team is about listenability. Uh, we're doing a lot of work around reading text aloud. Um, can you listen to the web? It's sort of the story that we're, we're telling. How, so what does a listenability score look like? How do we know if text is listenable or not? And how can we make hard-to-listen-to text easier to listen to um so we've got a specific call around that but that's much more focused process so partly i my hope is to actually reduce the number of applications by having it, it
0: more focused by having it more yeah. focused yeah.
1: the other thing that happened was a change in how we how i started to think about these grants because when when you have seven people apply and you give six people funding or or something like that, then the way that you have impact through your call is by making sure that those seven or eight people you give the funding to are able to do what they need to do. If you're in this opposite situation in which you're only able to fund a small percentage, then the ways you can generate value for the corporation and for the, uh, the grant, the people who are submitting grants, you've got to sort of rethink that. And so I tried to make it so that we could find ways to collaborate with these people. Maybe we don't give them money, but perhaps we can give them some data that's really exciting, right? And more and more thinking about Mozilla's role, we have a strong corporate mission, right? We really believe in the web and keeping it open and accessible to all. If we can work with someone and say, look, we weren't able to fund your work, but it sounds like you might find this data set that we've got really interesting. So we have a data set of people who have explicitly opted in to have all of their browser stuff tracked. And this is really, I want to be really clear about how much they have deliberately opted in that they really wanted to do this, right? Like, like we don't like, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we have that data set, the pioneer data set that we can share with people. Um, Which is in...
0: Valuable for researchers because getting access to that sort of data on your own can be really difficult absolutely. especially after recent, uh, recent recent events absolutely
1: <laughs> um, another lovely example of this uh, we did a survey uh, through the Mozilla Foundation about what IOT devices people had, but we put it out through Firefox and we kept it out there for quite some time and we ended up gathering over the course of a month about one hundred and eighty four thousand applications. Uh, the, Survey responses, right? And that's a fascinating data set. So I then worked with our trust and security people, and we put out, they wouldn't let me put out the qualitative work, but they let me put out the quantitative numbers um, and the metadata, right? Like Mm. um, what country was it coming in, right? What time of day, things like this, right? Not IP addresses, nothing personally identifiable. So we put out that data set, uh, Creative Commons licensed it, and then Jed Brubaker at uh, CU Boulder, took that data set and used it as part of his intro class. And so they had, whatever it was, 80 freshmen who's, who had a unit, which was take this very large data set um, and start to work with it, right? It changes the ways that you, that you do work if you've got 184,000 yes. replies instead of 10 or 100, yes. right? Yes. Um, how can you form meaningful questions? What are the tools you need to do that? Um, and I'm really delighted to see that happen. I'd love to see that happen yeah. more, right?
0: So you're facilitating all sorts of research, even apart from directly funding. Absolutely. That, as you said, is in line with the mission of Mozilla around the open Mm -hmm. open, um, web. And that also seems like good, they also seem like good strategies for keeping Mozilla front of mind for people or making it more, putting it in front of people more often.
1: I hope so. I mean, it's, I do believe in the mission, right? And I believe the the value of an open ecosystem, right? The great thing about the web is it's twofold. Um, anyone can publish anything on it. You don't have to ask a large company if it's okay. Can I publish something on your platform? Anyone can publish. And anyone can read it from any device. It's not like you have to have special devices that are blessed by one company to run the web. Anyone can do it. And that's a theme that runs through all the work we do. So we're doing a bunch of IoT stuff now. And the IoT stuff is all IoT about IoT
0: for people who don't know is Internet of Things, Sorry, the internet which is about all sorts of devices that are enabled to connect to the internet and share data and talk to
1: other devices. Precisely. Basically. And our take on it, we're calling Web of Things, which is about how can we take this device that might be a smart light bulb, um, but it's a smart light bulb that's run by, that's owned by, that was made by Philips or Samsung, and we're like, well, let's give that smart light bulb a URL. With security, with ways to 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 access it, you know, not just an open URL on the internet, but the idea that then any device can interact with that light bulb, right? And that's sort of the vision behind the Web of Things stuff. And that's a very sort of Mozilla story. How can we how can we take this global public resource that's open to all yeah. and facilitate it? Yeah, that
0: sounds really interesting.
1: I think so. Uh, not to you know report the company line, right? Like, yeah.
0: I can see that you're really enthusiastic, you know, and then your body language and the, just the sort of you know the the eyes lit up, and mm. that that's something that you really care about. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: So you've worked at you worked at Nokia, then Yahoo. You eventually got to Yahoo, mm-hmm. and then Mozilla. Yes. What were the triggers for sh- making those shifts? Just curious.
1: So Nokia uh, closed that lab, uh, or closed most of that lab. Oh, um, okay. And. Uh, so we got laid off.
0: Right, so necessity was Necessi- the first one. It <laughs> was
1: a necessity. Um, the second one, uh, Yahoo closed down uh, the vast majority of Yahoo Labs. Um, and I was not laid off, but a lot of the people I was working with were. Um, and uh, so I I stayed for a bit. I stayed for about another six months after a lot of my colleagues were laid off. And I did some super work during that time. I really enjoyed what I did. Um, I did some work about with uh, some people in um, the accessibility group about doing better keyboards for blind people. I did some interesting uh, work around uh, diversity and inclusion across the workforce and things like that.
0: And were they driven by your interests, or how did they come about?
1: Those were, i being been made principal scientist, and I thought to myself, what are the things that I should do as principal scientist, particularly when you are in that mode where you are... Less concerned about what the company thinks of you. Um, And so I had this sort of six months of of doing great work and having great fun. And I think I made some real, I was on the membership team, and I think I made some real contributions there as well that were much more focused on what the immediate problems of the company were. But it got to the end of that, and I was like, all right, it's time to be done. But in fact, the thing that I started to realize much in the same way, I had gone back and thought about the teaching and gone to Terry and said, this is the thing I've enjoyed the most. Yes. I thought about what I had enjoyed the most um, in the last couple of years of my career. Um, I had a, had a very supportive manager, um, Ayman Sharma, uh, when I had gone into chairing Kai. I had so much fun. And is
0: a major conference in our our research area. So
1: it was about 4,000 people. Yes. Um, I know that you're foolish enough to have taken on (laughs) doing it next time. Um, But I had been working on it with Alison Druin, uh, who was at the University of Maryland at the time and is now a a Pratt, um, at the Pratt Institute, to be Mm -hmm. clear. Um, And... uh, that's your English. background coming through.
0: <laughs> Precisely.
1: Um, we'd come up with a theme for the conference, which was Kai for Good, and Kai for Good was uh, fine. We put it on the logos or whatever, but it led us to think about what we were trying to do, and it was great because we were trying to answer questions. We're like, well, what's the Kai for Good answer? And I love that this idea of Kai for Good—that you can do human-computer interaction. Uh, for the sake of the public good, not just for the sake of the bottom line or to show, you know, value in some sort of economic way, but really this is great, right? Um, so when I thought about the things I had done, Kai for good was on the top. And so I made a list of the things I wanted to be doing in my next position. And the first one was Kai for good. And then I went around to, you know, talk to my friends and, uh, uh, was chatting to people, and well, I'm really looking for a place where I can do Kai for Good. And I was uh, actually playing guitar with a friend um, over at a friend's place with this guy, Sean, um, and we're playing guitar um and- Various other instruments that none of us play particularly well. And I <laughs> say, enjoy. I, I say, I'm looking for, for this guy for good. And he's like, well, do you want to come and talk to me about Mozilla? And so I came to talk to him and I hadn't really thought about Mozilla as an option, but I was really impressed by what I heard. I called up another friend who was working for there, working there. And, uh, it's a fascinating organization. And I was like, there, yeah, this is a great place to be. I'm really excited by this. Um, but I love that idea. I think I'm the only person on the planet who likes job searches because you get to reinvent yourself.
0: Yeah. And That's I an know interesting how, way of putting it. Yeah. I don't know how
1: true this is in academia, but I feel like in industry, let's say you do A, B, C, D, and E, right? And in mm-hmm. fact, you're only evaluated on A and B, right? You do C and D and E because yeah. they've somehow become your responsibility. But the only things you're evaluated on are A and B. Well, when you switch jobs, you can say, well, I've been doing A, B, C, D, and E. I want to be a person who does, say, B and E. Well, then you sort of rewrite your resume. You're like, I, a person who does B and E, uh, should do this. And, you know, yeah. and then you go to people and they're like, we've been looking for someone to do B and E. We're looking for an E person who really understands yeah. B. <laughs> and I love that you get yeah. to sort of reinvent who you are yeah. and reinvent what your priorities are. And so I was like, well, my priorities are, Kai for good has gone from being, you know, E mm. to something that I want to be A or B, right? Like, nice, this is really yeah. Here.
0: And you can say, and you know, as an added bonus, you know, and you get the steak knives of yes. a, 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 C, and D, or whatever. Absolutely.
1: It's, yeah. Well, it's so useful that you know something about A, C, and D, right? Yeah. You know.
0: Do we do that in academia? I guess we do actually, to to some extent, but it's maybe harder to pull off. Yes, because sometimes job ads for academic positions will say they want someone with particular expertise mm. that you might have done in a small way. So you try to sort of play that up and foreground that more. But I guess if you don't have the publications to back you up in that, it is a harder case to make. Yeah. Now, so you've always been, all of these positions in industry have been research positions rather than in the product
1: delivery sort of side. That's true. The Mozilla organization that I'm in now is really transitioning from mm. being originally the place where it is now the R&D org. But it is not really a research org in the traditional sense, right? right? Um, we, in particular, we have the onus opportunity to ship product direct, oh, okay. direct to customers. Um, it includes some very researchy things. So I have colleagues who work on Rust, which is a, a programming language that's a replacement for C, um, that's much safer than C, and people who use it think it's much better, um, we're never going to make money off Rust. The intent is not to make money off Rust. And in fact, explicitly the intent is to make it so that Rust is its own. We don't call it Mozilla Rust. No. It is Rust. And it is run out of its own sort of community and thing. Um, and that's great. But that's part of the organization that I'm in. But really the focus over the last year or two has switched. And we've really been pushing to how can we, how can we make products, right? How can we make products as a way to have impact in the world in a sustainable Way. So
0: are you okay with that shift? Because having done more research, because you, you have quite an extensive, you have an extensive publication profile mm. through all those
1: industry years.
0: Mm. Um, does that mean you're publishing less now or it, you see in the future publishing less?
1: It's an interesting question. So I'm okay, entirely okay with it. I think yeah. it's a really exciting way to have more impact in the world. Yeah. Um, I am really concerned about the way that we treat publications as the way to, to, to make success in the world. Right. And, uh, I love what Casey Fiesler has done with this year's CSCW conference, where she's encouraged everyone to do a medium post to present the, the, their work in an, uh, in an open way to the public, right. To people who aren't going to download a paper from an academic institution. I think that's so important. Um, and it, it's something that in our, Mozilla Research Grant Funding, we have a line in there that says, basically, send us any papers that you write, and we encourage you to do public, some publicly accessible way to do this. Because mm-hmm. this ties back to this previous question about university funding. I think it is so important and so incumbent upon research as a field to make clear and visible and, and important how valuable what, what it is we do. Yeah, and the more we have this impression as being a bunch of academics stuck in an ivory tower doing stuff that you know where they're just talking to each other, I see no value in that. Right? Mm -hmm. We need to be taking seriously this call for public outreach. Yeah.
0: So you're very clear then that while you do have publications previously, what you're really driven by that what really underpins it all is that desire to have an impact. That's also reflected in the Kai for Good. You know, it's that it seems like the Kai for Good is a refinement of that. Um, wanting to make a difference have an impact agenda Mm -hmm. and the implications of it for where you are now might be, you know, more product delivery but it doesn't sound like it's constraining in the way that sometimes you hear people working in industry contexts feeling constrained by having to deliver to the the company's strategic direction.
1: I think one of the things that really helps is, um, I would say there's two things. One, uh, Sean, my boss, is very, you know, it's up to us to figure out what we're doing and then do it, right? There's there's not sort of this being handed down from up above, you must deliver this thing.
0: To this product, yeah. this particular product team. Um, or, and but. the
1: flip side is also that we, uh, you get to tell the stories that you need to tell in the ways you tell them. Um, and sometimes that's uh, shipping some piece of product, sometimes it's doing a blog post, sometimes it's sharing a data set. Yeah. Um, And those are all ways to have impact in the world. And it's tricky to, it's tricky to measure. One of the advantages of Mozilla, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to, to, to the, the the company line. We don't have, we have one shareholder, right? I work for the Mozilla Corporation. It has one shareholder, which is the Mozilla Foundation. Mm -hmm. And the Mozilla Foundation is a not-for-profit, uh, organization, right? It's a charity. Um, and that means that we don't have, quarterly, we don't have to return shareholder value in the short term. Nice. And that frees you to do these things that are a little bit longer, yeah. um, that have a little bit more space. And there's a double bottom bottom line, right? You, can, you end up, you've got to make profit at the end of the day because you need you to got keep Because you've got to keep on, living. Right. I you mean, the company's living.
0: got to keep surviving. Absolutely.
1: And, yeah. and that's totally crucial. At the same time, uh, it means there are things that we wouldn't do yeah. um, Yes, we could take all the data and then sell it to people. <laughs> that's so far away from what we would possibly do. And for other companies that aren't so mission-driven and are shareholder-driven in particular, if that produces short-term value, then that is... You are actually... Like, fiduciary duties can mean that that is what you must yeah. do if that's the way to do it. And to try and move away from this notion of uh, having to just produce short-term profit... Um, it's remarkably empowering I feel very lucky I want to be really clear about that
0: but it also says that it's worth putting in some time to think as you talked about before what's important to you what are your values and where's where is there an alignment and a fit where you can really feel like you know you can bring together the power of the company and your passions and interests Mm -hmm. to make a bigger impact and a difference.
1: Absolutely. And for this, I think the ways that I've thought about my job search have changed over time. Um, I went through stages where the group of people I was working with was absolutely key, right? Did I know those people? Had I met them? Had I, did I feel confident about working with those people? With Mozilla, I didn't know the people I was coming to work with, with the exception of Sean, who I'd worked with at Nokia and someone I knew from undergrad who was far off in Boston somewhere. Um, but I sort of ended up with this values-driven decision-making. Um, and I had other stuff as well. I had a list of, I think it was six or seven things, which the first one was Kai for Good. Um, I wanted to be in a management role. I wanted to be doing something more strategic and not UX. right? I wanted to do HCI, not UX. For me, that was the right decision. It wouldn't be for other people, but for me, that was the right decision. Um, things like I love being able to talk about my work. Um, I have some very good friends at Apple, for example, who can't talk about their work at all. And I love the transparency of an organization like Mozilla where I can go and talk about my stuff. Um, I don't have to make you sign an NDA before I talk about what I'm doing. Um, and it's very empowering and it reduces the amount of friction in the system. And every so often I'll get asked to sign an NDA. And if it's a big, important thing, of course we do. But the default is that we don't. And when someone says, can you sign this NDA, we point them at our lawyers whose job it is to say, we don't really sign NDAs. Um, and generally, you don't have to, right? It turns out. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. Did you – what was your process for coming up with those points? Did you ex- explicitly sit down, give yourself a bubble of time, piece of paper, write them down? Or was it just something that mulled around in your head that, you know, Somewhere over two, time?
1: Somewhere between the two, I – I ended up with six or seven of them. I wrote down some of them, scribbled them down on a bit of paper. Um, I knew that kind of for good. those three that I just mentioned. Um, I talked them over with my wife, which was a hugely important part of this process. Location was very important. I told you about the eight minutes. Yes. I didn't have, must be able to yes. bike there in eight minutes. minutes yeah. But I knew I didn't want to. I lived down in Mountain View, in uh, uh, which is due south of San Francisco, by about an hour. I knew I didn't want to have an hour commute each way. Um, if I had half an hour or forty-five minute bike ride, that's different. That that's okay. Yeah. So location was important. I put salary on there because I didn't want to give this to this list to a recruiter and be oh, and I don't care about how much I get paid. That seemed like a poor strategic decision to be in. So I put that on the list. It wasn't a huge. The honest answer is it wasn't a huge motivator, but it's definitely an issue, right? You know, how do you? you there's a family appropriately,
0: there. yeah. You've got a family to support, mm-hmm. so that is a responsibility, and just valuing your own worth and yes. experience
1: that you bring. Absolutely.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you you can tick all
1: your boxes with this. I think so. I story. mean, I'm remarkably lucky, and and. Uh, I definitely acknowledge the luck, right? I mean, I, I'm presenting it here as, as, as as so I made a great plan and I executed <laughs> it. And there's some of that, but... Uh... But I
0: think that's a common theme with so many people I talk to. Very few people have sat down and had this strategic plan that they've made happen. It's been happenstance and coincidental meetings, playing the guitar with someone who happens to say, come and chat, and, you know, it's it's... Just being in situations and being open to, you know, I don't, I guess, recognize those opportunities and then follow them yep.
1: up. Yeah. It's tricky within the academic world because the partly it's a supply and demand question, right? Um, I look at what a good student will be doing. I'm filling out uh, recommendation letters for one of my old interns who's brilliant. And yet I look at that list of recommendation letters and it's, it's daunting. And you're like, well, this is, this is such a long list because it's so, so hard to, to figure out where you are. Um, I don't know how – I don't see a better solution to this system.
0: Um, I don't – I think the U.S. system seems particularly competitive and difficult. I, I know that it's getting increasingly that case everywhere. Yes. And in other sectors, there's more of the casualization of the postdoctoral workforce where – it's harder to get into more tenure-track yes. positions. Yes. So there are challenges in – different challenges, but challenges in all countries, I think. In
1: but re- at least recognizing it as a – there's value, I think, in recognizing it as an issue rather than, well, this is the way it is and it has always been and should always be. Um, you could see – I'm going to throw something out here I haven't thought about at all, no. which is always dangerous. Um, in the UK, when you apply to universities, you fill out one form. It's called UCAS. Um, and you fill out the UCAS form, and I think you can fit 12 universities. Do you mean
0: as a student? As or a student. A, mm.
1: Sorry, yes, to be explicit, this is like applying to be an undergraduate. Yes. You fill out one form, and you write one essay, and you apply to 12 universities, along with your transcripts, whatever. Um, in the U.S., you apply to each one university separately. There is a thing called the Common Application Form, but most universities don't use it. Um, it's incredibly complicated yeah. and very expensive. If you apply to, you know, a dozen universities, that might be $100 per university or more. You pay to apply? Yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that really limits access. Yes. Doesn't if we think about equity and...
1: Absolutely. And I think some universities are doing better about, you know, waiving application fees. There is this common application form for some cases. Um, but it doesn't delight me as a process that, that I, you know, you look at and... Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, and no, I think there are lots of processes in academia and in universities that, I don't know, we need to almost sort of go back to the drawing board and start again on and say, do we really need this... And who's it serving? Whose needs is who's it, it serving? serving?
1: And whose needs are serving? And who ends up paying for that? And I mean, I think there's a bigger question. I was just talking with Leisha Palin, who's chair of the informatics department at CU Boulder in uh, Colorado. What does the future of the public university look like? Um, I happen to like universities. I think they're really, really important. And they're very good for the long-term survival of of, of all that is good in the world kind of thing. What does it mean to to lean into that in a useful way, right? How do you this is something that she's actually directly concerned with as as someone who runs a whole department? Uh, what does it mean to keep a public university going, right? Um to loop back to our question about funding changes, right? And well, if this is no longer seen as a priority by by governments, um you look at sort of successive years of cutting funding. I believe just about everywhere.
0: Everywhere, yeah. Um,
1: do I think there are? I see, I see the potential for universities to reduce inequality at a societal level in a fundamental way. To me, that seems like a pretty good thing. I don't like Gini coefficients being big. Right, I want to see them a little bit smaller. Um, how we engage with that as people within a public sphere, I don't. I don't know what the right yeah, answer is.
0: Yeah just a couple of things about your role so how many hours a week do you work what's what's the sort of working pattern I'm just curious
1: it's a good question um, I drop the kids off at school so you've got I have, I have three children three children um, that's why I look like this <laughs> <laughs> I, I uh, two of them are seven years old so I drop them off at um, they go to the local public project-based learning school. Um, So I drop them off by 8.30. Um, And then my little one, Wolfie, he's four years old, so I drop him off at preschool. Um, Then I come home and drop the car and bike to work. Um, And uh, I'm usually there by 9-ish. I try not to have 9 a.m. meetings because it's just so tight. If drop off if I have to read two books to Wolfie. <laughs> the, uh, so I try yeah. and meetings sort of I don't try and have meetings before nine thirty or ten. And then i c I'm home by I try and be home by six because that way I get to see the kids. Um and I don't really work weekends, he says on oh, no. a is it a Sun it's a it's a Tuesday now. Conferences are sort of weird. Yeah, that's right? a bit yeah. But I I've never really
0: it's not a routine thing it's not me. a
1: routine thing yeah. um, I don't work routinely uh, routinely I do not work weekends or evenings very little before the kids were born I used to um, i used to i had entire research projects that I did after dinner, right sitting on the couch um, i'm so tired mm. <laughs> like I'm so tired by the time that by the time i've we've had dinner I've put the kids to bed i've read them a chapter of whatever we're reading right now mm. um it gets to nine o'clock. All I want to do is do my wife claps and I
0: know,
1: like, great, let's watch something short and funny that, you know, that is amusing and, and then go to sleep. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's something like, uh, eight or nine hours a day, five days a week. That's right. Um,
0: and does that feel like it's, is it, is it, are you pressured to try to keep doing that? Like from other work or is it, something that you're able to manage and make work.
1: It works pretty well. Um it works pretty well. I there there's I would say I work from home maybe probably not quite a day a week anymore. I end up with more meetings than I want. But there's no particular need to go into work if I don't need to. But you know they do feed me there, which is nice. Um there's definitely been times when I'm like, well, I've worked from home all morning. I have to go for lunch anyway. It's like- <laughs> I might as well go to work.
0: Eight-minute cycle into work.
1: I did have one moment. I remember I needed to fax something, and I started to look at, um, whatever, installing some fax driver, and I decided it would be less time to go to work, put it into a fax machine, and then come home <laughs> than actually get some horrible driver to work on my yes, machine and, yeah, you know. fight with it. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So you've moved into a management role as well, and how? what's that – Experience been like what are, what are your lessons learned and strategies for doing that
1: so uh, insert some disclaimer about who knows how, how, how good I am at this um, so I have a wonderful team so hire totally awesome people that's what I did um, I have uh,
0: so all, but they were all new the all people that you hired
1: I brought them in one of them had, was already with the company um, just sort of in a different role um, she's my engineer um, Tamra. Uh, she's based in Seattle now. Uh, she's been with Mozilla a bit longer than I have. Um, highly, highly competent. And a lot of what I'm able to do is because she's able to do things like run contractors, and I never see that actual part of that management process, right? Um, so I have an engineer. I have a designer called Abe. Um, it took forever to hire someone because I was looking for this sort of unicorn that would be able to do a whole bunch of different design stuff. Um, and I had the HR recruiting people sitting down with me and saying, look, you're not going to get your unicorn. You need to cut down. And then Abe showed up. And we're like, that's guy's brilliant. <laughs> so we've got Abe. Um, and then I've got Janice Tsai, uh, who was uh, – she was at Microsoft before this. She's got a PhD from CMU with Laurie Kramer. Um, really top tier researcher. Really able to turn around stuff very, very quickly. Um, she's got a deep understanding of the field. Uh, she's at the conference. Um, there's something nice Sean, my boss, has a sort of Noah's Ark theory which is that you want people to have someone to talk to who shares I don't know if he'd use this wording but who shares the same epistemological assumptions about knowledge in the world Mm -hmm. and uh, Janice it's great to have another HCI person to work with because I can can say um, why don't we do a Wizard of Oz study on this, see how it goes, if that doesn't work we'll throw it on Mechanical Turk and I don't have to explain words there; it just works, right? Yes.
0: So, what um, what what does management look like practically, or leading? Would you say managing or leading?
1: So, I think I do both, um, but I think this—I think of them as kind of separate things. Um, the managing, uh, this administration of making sure people know how much they're getting paid and things like that, and. Checking boxes to approve uh, expenses and stuff like that. That's, that's not interesting, right? Um, trying to build a strategic narrative that we know that we can all agree on that we're mo- moving towards, particularly in a research world like this where we don't have a clear path already, mm-hmm. has been very difficult and very hard work. Um, I think we've figured out what that is. I think we have some directions to go towards it to validate that we that this is the right direction, um, and that's where it sort of moves over into the leading from the managing, yeah, right? Yeah.
0: So what was hard about it?
1: Coordinating with people who have different epistemological assumptions, oh. right? Particularly people who are computer scientists and have been trained as computer scientists without the uh, rich understanding and I would argue even respect for different assumptions about the way that knowledge is created in the world. Mm. Um, the thing that I think is HCI's secret power is our – we're such a broad church. You can do so much stuff and publish it and, in an HCI conference. Yes. And uh, I think that's remarkable. There's not I don't know of another field where you can do so much stuff with so many different kinds of methods with so many different kinds of topics, with so many different kinds of ways of validating the knowledge that you've created in the world, which makes our job very difficult because uh, there's no one thing you can say that applies to everyone, right? You can't say, oh, well, you've got to have this many N, right? Or your p-values need to be this. Or you must have uh, this much data or use that algorithm because someone is going to do something completely different. Yeah. And how you can create something that can still continue to create valid, interesting work in the world and yet embrace this eclectic mess, um, I think is a really fascinating problem. But it's one that the successful approaches to, to uh, HCI, I think, need to embrace, not, not try and damp down, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. So you were sort of doing that in a, almost a microcosm there at Mozilla then, you know, with this open space. Very much so. In a way, and deciding what your version of that would be.
1: Very much so. Yeah. Um,
0: that, that connected with everyone in your team from the sounds it of It connected with
1: people in my team, but then there's other people who are working on similar topics who don't necessarily have, uh, who might be doing slightly different stuff. So we're all working around speech and language. But how you figure out what that contribution is and how do you Figure out if you're having impact in the ways you want to have impact. Um, And I think that question of of how do you measure impact, right? Um, In industry, we talk about DAO a lot. DAO is daily active users. Okay. Um, And uh, DAO is a useful, nearly... In many, many fields, DAO is proportional to everything else, right? DAO is proportional in particular to revenue, um, to impact, to – if you've got a million users, you have much more impact than if you've got 10,000 users, right? Um,
0: In principle, but it depends what what it is that you're offering. Absolutely. Because Ta- but the potential target population is, I guess.
1: Exactly. I mean, the, the Rust stuff we were talking about is a nice example. Rust will never have a million DAO. There will not be a daily a million daily active users of, of a systems-level computer language. Mm. Um, so it's not the only one. Um, and I'm always suspicious of any metric where, oh, well, we can measure this, so let's measure this, right? Yep. But I think those questions of how you, can, how you can have impact, how you can plan to have impact, and how you can measure the impact that you've had... Um, those are the tricky ones, right? The the research grant program, how do I measure that impact? Well, I think it's been great. And I'm working right now with uh, Miriam Avery as our director of Foresight, um, super smart, uh, comes from a really strong anthro background, um, working with her to try and figure out how do we tell a story about this is the value that this has made. And some of that is direct changes in code that, that Mozilla ships that came out of this. Um, Some of it's much more theoretical stuff. Um, Some of it might be uh, uh, changes in attitudes in the world. Uh, All of those count, and all of those can be really valid.
0: And it's up to you to to define them and make those arguments.
1: Yes. I just put a meeting on my schedule for Friday to have that meeting with Miriam to sit down and say, okay, how are we going to tell this story of this success? Mm -hmm. What do we consider success? Um,
0: so you don't have any Mozilla-imposed um, metrics of success
1: then? So there are metrics for the company as a whole, right? We have, uh, uh, we have a daily active user target. Um, we have uh, uh, some other ones around other ways that people use things and engage with stuff, and we're counting that. Um, What's the third one? We've just changed some of the details, and so I forget. But there's sort of these very macro-level things. Right.
0: And then for specific projects, it's up to you to really be sp- yes. clear about what exactly you're contributing to that.
1: Really, in the emerging technologies world, what we're looking for is, uh, is impact of appropriate thing for the thing we're looking at, right? So it may be that you have um, – if you've got 10 users – who are really passionate and using all the time, that's a great sign. And I would take 10 users passionately using your product over a 1,000 users who, yeah, they're like, do the thing, and then they go away, right? Um, that's really that crucial thing. So trying to find what those signals are. And we know what they look like when you scale up because you've got nice curves that sort of go up and to the right. Oh, that must be good. The curve's going up to the right. Um, if you can think about, How do you spot those early on? How do you make the changes that results in that early on? It's really interesting questions. To keep
0: feeding back into the work that you're doing. Yes. Um, Just going back to the thing about how you get the team on board, how how the team collectively decides this sort of, you know, what they're about, what that Mm. that vision and story is. What are some of the practical ways that you did that? Did you do away days? Did you, you know, I mean, how did it... What does it practically look like?
1: So we're a pretty distributed team. Um, Yes, because
0: Seattle is not just around the corner.
1: Exactly. So uh, conveniently, we're all in one time zone now. We weren't for a while, but now we all are, which is a total bonus. Um, Both uh, Tamara and Janice are up in Seattle. Abe is based in San Francisco and comes down to to View a day or two a week, maybe three sometimes. Um, I... uh, I go up to San Francisco. I want to say it's every two weeks and it's not even close to every two weeks, but, but every now and then. Um, we try Mozilla as a company does, uh, twice a year we have all hands mm-hmm. where you have everyone in the company comes to one location. Something like 38% of Mozilla employees are not in an office. They work wherever they want to work. Um, but not in a Mozilla office space. Interestingly, when we do the engagement survey, those employees report that they are happier and more satisfied at working at the company um, than people who are actually in an office, which wow, is Wow, that's
0: interesting.
1: Um, but because of that, we do get together twice a year there, and we usually do two other work weeks on sort of the alternate quarters where we'll get together for a week. Um, uh, maybe it's in Mountain View, maybe it's in San Francisco, maybe it's somewhere else. Um, just your team or the whole company? This, this case we'll, is just the team. Um, and we'll try and do short things. Like every so often we'll do a week where uh, perhaps perhaps three of us or whoever it is will, if we're doing user testing, we might try and all be in one place for that user testing. Um, those sort of opportunities. Uh, the other thing, that so there, those are the in-person things. Um, there's a lot of use of Slack. There's a lot of use of email. I was going to
0: ask about how do you support the the communication and, and the cohesion of the culture of the team when you aren't face-to-face.
1: So Slack. Slack and email. email. And the other thing I think is really interesting, and this one this one would be fascinating to come back to in a couple of years and see if I still believe we're doing the right thing. Mm. Um, when we started, uh, there's a term uh, of having a stand-up, right? And a stand-up, if you're in the, in the agile yes. um, framing – A stand-up is sort of a 15-minute thing that's literally standing up. 50 minutes is long, right? It's reporting quickly, say what you're doing, move on. We originally were talking about team stand-ups, and then I explicitly, we changed the names of those um, because we realized the important thing partly was reporting on the status. But that's where we... Stand-ups... The original notion of a stand-up presupposes geographic co-location, right? And so... The stand-up is is this uh, functional thing, but a lot of the soft stuff happens. W- water cooler conversations happen literally around the water cooler. Mm. Well, we don't have that, and so we need to make sure we have those moments. Um, a lot of us have kids on the team; um, those make a big difference. Uh, all of our all of our meeting times. Are framed around when we can all get – we're all dropping off kids yeah, in the morning you, and picking yeah. them up later, um, and we work around those times. Um, so having those daily meetings, uh, I think they're on the schedule usually for half an hour. Um, sometimes they go over. I think. So do you, you do them on – On video. On video, right. Um, yeah. And often those will be people – one mm-hmm. of us uh, – Abe often calls in from the car because he has slightly later dropping kids off times. Um, so he'll do them from the car on his mm-hmm. phone um but it's a nice it's a nice thing and i think we're i think we're reasonably close so you t- it. that
0: that touch base every day hear
1: each other's voice yes yes um and there is a, there is presumably some sort of optimal amount for this i will say all the strategic planning has taken its own toll on this it's been it's taken a lot of time it's taken a lot of effort it's been fun but it's been a lot of time and effort
0: i think anna cox when i talked to her she had some students who were distributed and she would have sort of almost the equivalent of a stand-up on Slack yeah. where they had a, a bot that you know, asked them all to put in their mm-hmm. morning report about what they were planning to do or what they did yesterday. And at least when I spoke to her, she was saying that worked well. But it misses that real-time discussion.
1: Yeah, um, I think it helps once you know what you're doing, those yes, can work very well. Yes. Um, when you're still figuring out what the narrative is, um, I sort of look forward to our to our meetings getting a bit shorter. They've, they've been getting a bit long because they needed to be because we're doing all of this strategic, strategic yeah. big thinking about what we're going to do for the next three years. Now we can just yeah. do it.
0: So it's just the, it's fa- it's recognizing phases and adapting
1: yep. processes for phases. Yep.
0: You've been overwhelmingly positive and enthusiastic about working in industry as a as a researcher, and doesn't sound like you regret that move at all. Uh, Are there any downsides?
1: Um, So, I think my experiences at Mozilla are um, particularly positive in that Mm. respect. Companies are hard objects, right? There are many, there's so many people trying to get to go in roughly one coherent decision direction. uh, It's very difficult to to steer a ship of that many people in in one direction um, in a coherent way. Um, The more that I, as I've been promoted and been in a situation in which I see more and more how that sausage is made, um, I don't know what the right tools are to do this, to create those narratives in a way that's scalable and has impact across the company. Um, And that
0: necessarily have to be adaptive for company to survive. Absolutely. In a, um, in a rapidly changing VUCA environment.
1: Absolutely right and so I don't know what those right tools are. The tools I feel like I'm using right now are not optimal um, and I would like to figure out what those are and that's been a tiring process. I think I've worked harder in the last two months than I have in the rest of the time I've been at Mozilla. Like yeah. It's been figuring out that three-year strategic narrative has been really difficult um, and we've worked with sort of various outside agencies whatever but it's that stuff 's really tricky. Um, I think there are issues of uh, diversity and inclusion in particular, which continue to be problems across the industry. I think Mozilla has done a better job than most companies around that um, but uh, if but that 's only if you count the employees um, we see we have a lot of volunteers who who feed into Mozilla and are a huge part of what we do. And that's much trickier, right? If I'm trying to improve the diversity of my company, let's say I don't have enough women, right, as a statistical representation of of, of the world. Well, if I work for a company, it's relatively easy in that I can hire more women. That's how it works, right? Um, I don't even have to fire the men. I can just hire more women. And then over time, I will have more women in the company. If you're thinking about contributions to open source, how do you do that, Right. Um, and you, we've seen some cases, some pretty pro- high-profile cases, in which prominent open-source projects have realized they have a problem with this, right? How do you make an open-source project which really reflects the community mm. um, and doesn't exclude people? And I actually think the exciting thing here is to look at things like the work of people like Casey Fiesler, who have been looking at uh, fan fiction communities, w- which are arguably open communities that require a certain amount of investment to get into it, and you look at the onboarding processes, how do they bring people into their communities, right? Let's see if we can learn from those because they've managed to do diversity in a way that we necessarily haven't. So I think those that's a real issue um, and something that we need to be thinking about.
0: That also just sounds like a... a... A good challenge to have It's a well. super it's challenge like to have. Yeah. Um, again, an, an opportunity to make a difference, have an impact.
1: Yes, yes. And I've put some non-trivial amount of my time in the last couple of years into that. And uh, it's been satisfying. We had an interesting case where, again, with this engagement survey, um, people reporting they were being harassed and bullied at work. And I was like, what? That's Because it really didn't seem... The right thing for the culture, right? So we dig in a little bit more to these anonymous survey results. So we don't really, we know it's people within ET and we have a bit more categories than that, but not that much more. It turns out what was happening was that people were getting harassed on the internet because of the work they were doing as part of their job. So we have really strong technical women who are giving talks as part of um, our developer relations work. So someone would come and give a talk like uh, CSS Grid or something like that, right? Um, and then they would get horrible stuff back like, oh, stupid woman, shut up and go back in the kitchen, right? Exactly. That was I, my reaction. I'm so,
0: sorry, my <laughs> mouth, is, my jaw is just dropped. Um, wow.
1: And so we're like, okay, this is really an issue. Um, So we spent some time talking to people. We found a couple of services that we felt could help us with this. Um, There's a a new company called Tall Poppy, uh, which is founded by two really awesome people who have a lot of experience with these kind of things to help around harassment, so we're working with them. We've got um, some work with a company called Abean, who have a product called Delete Me, which removes your personal information from databases so that... Uh, let's say I don't like something you've done, I can't look up your address and then send you 222 pizzas, right? Nice. Yes. Yeah, um, or a SWAT team or whatever. Um, yeah, well, exactly. So, looking at those services to have uh, ways to support people seems really important. Um, so, that's more about supporting your own employees? It and is, although, them. because of the volunteer based nature, we're more and more thinking about how we can extend those kind of protections. Mm. And that means writing those contracts in a way that means that we can extend them to volunteers, right? If some volunteer is doing this, because we have a huge volunteer tech speaker program, which is hugely important, how can we make sure that we can look after those people as well? Because they're Mozillians as well, right?
0: Again, very values-driven work. Yes,
1: Mm. stunningly so. brilliant. It's
0: brilliant. So uh, just in wrapping up, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't or that you'd want to be just talking about?
1: There's one thing I wanted to mention, which um, is the difficulty that people have when they move from an academic contents into industry. Um, that I is can... this
0: straight from PhD into industry, or having been in a faculty position going into
1: industry? I've seen both. Yeah, um, and I've seen it even for you know internships or yeah. short things
0: yeah.
1: in academia. Um, I'll say this as a big blanket statement, and then we can, you know, you can pick on me for a bit. That'd be fun. Um, in academia, showing your work is really valued, right? Um, I had one incident in which I had a colleague I was working with who had recently come from academia, and we were reviewing an area of uh, academic research. Uh, I forget what; it doesn't really matter. Um, and he identified about sixty papers that were relevant to this question, right? Sort of put them in a folder. I was like, great. Um, But that's 60 papers in a folder. It's not pretty useful. So then he went and did a literature review in which he went through and wrote a paragraph about each one of the papers and said what was going on. And I was like, yes, this is still not useful. Yes. Eventually, we got to what we were looking for, which is here are the three things we should do. Yes. Right. We need to, I don't know, paint it blue. And here's the paper that says we should paint it blue. We need to put flowers on it. And here are the three papers that say we should put flowers on it, and we should definitely not call it Dave, right? And here's the paper that says that, right? And that idea that, that what was necessary is, what's the impact? What should we change? What should we do differently? Rather than, how did you get there, right? The
0: actionable stuff. Yes. Give me the, give me the sort of so what's. Yes. And some evidence that you've got the, the stuff yeah. to back it up. So, yes, I can totally relate to that because I used to work in industry. When I think back to some of the deliverables that we produced for clients, they were rigorous and detailed and even though we worked with a graphic designer who was very good at sort of listening to us explain what we thought was important and putting it into a very simple graphical model, we still packed it with too much text. Mm -hmm. We did try to do the executive summary that tried to pull out the you know the things, but even they were quite dense, and I would just approach it so much differently now, yeah, so yeah, how do we how do we get that transition to actually shifting our understanding of how we again communicate results to have impact
1: well one I will give one explicit thing that I think is valuable um, I can go and find a dozen recommendations on how you should give talks, right, and what should be on slides. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're all about keep all the text off them, keep them minimal, whatever. What that ignores is the reality that in the corporation, the place where knowledge resides is in the deck, right? It's in the Google slides. It's in the PowerPoint slides. What that means, however, is the right way to do it is not to therefore put all the data on the slides. It's to separate out the archival and knowledge repository part of the deck from the bit that you present, right? And so you explicitly say, here's the 10 slides that when I'm presenting to you, I will do this, and maybe within that you link to things, yes. right? But here's the ten presentation slides that happen to be in the same slide deck as here's the tables of data, here's the lists of questions, and those can be approximately speaking as much data as you want to put on there, same as you know with any other thing. And I'd love to say that we could put that data somewhere else in a uh, uh, in a written document, but I've found that that doesn't work so well, right? the coin of the realm is uh, is the slide deck right yeah. um, and
0: and in fact that's what we did end up doing more as we as we learned over time um was actually doing the slide deck i don't think we were so good as in putting a lot of the backup data in the back of the slide deck and i can see that that would work really well cuz it also means that you know Someone who's in charge of that division who cares about the, the, the recommendation on slide three can go into the detail that's related to slide three. Absolutely. If you can, if you can find some way of making that path clear yeah. to them.
1: Because I want to be you, – you said we were talking about robustness, right? Yeah. That's hugely important, right? You need to have reliable, robust data. I'm not disagreeing with that. You just need to say – by the way, it's reliable and robust. See slide fifty-two, yes. in which we talk about how reliable and robust yeah. this is. Right? Instead than- of
0: read the next twenty pages. Yes, yes, yes. I think that the um, there is an increasing move in a lot of academic contexts for funding bodies to require uh, reporting on impact. Yes. In and they're getting increasingly particular in having how that's reported yeah and in having impact people are having to go out and speak more to the public or think about those public engagement strategies so maybe in general people will get a little bit better
1: i hope so mm, i hope so yeah and again i think yeah. things like the medium posts are a great way to, yeah. to have that yeah out.
0: i'll make sure to put a link to all, all of those on the web That'd page yeah well joe fish thank you very much for your time really, really you appreciate it me. i've
1: really enjoyed it great
0: find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com you can also subscribe to changing academic life on itunes and now also on stitcher and you can follow change acad life on twitter and if something connected with you please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently